great to have you in church this evening. Uh, it'd be wonderful. Go for it, sure. Um, it'd be really handy for yourselves and for me if you had that passage that Katie just read for us uh, open. It is a longish passage. Uh, we won't be spending an equal amount of time in each section. So if I get through three quarters of what feels like it should be about three quarters of tonight's talk, and we're still only at verse five, be assured we're not doing an equal amount of infant stage of the way. Uh, and we're almost at the end of 1 Corinthians, actually. We've got a second half of chapter 14 next week. Following Easter, we'll spend three weeks looking at the wonderful conclusion to this letter that speaks about the bodily resurrection from the dead. Uh, but it has been uh, a letter that has covered many uh, overwhelming uh, and pretty thought provoking things. How about we pray and ask uh, that God will not let a moment go to waste, but the Bible of the Spirit might help us to, to grasp and find rest in uh, the things that He speaks to us. Let's pray. Uh, dearest Father, we do thank you for the way in which you gift us the way in which you give speech to us as a church, that we might not only hear you speaking to us in Scripture, but we might speak the words of the one that is there. We do ask, Father, that as we look at 1 Corinthians 14 this evening, we be shaping and ordering our speech in a way that would leave you delighting in our love for each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, on the screen is a still from the 1960s movie adaptation to a pretty well-known uh, novel, The Lord of the Flies, by British author William Goldie. I think the book was written in about 1954. Uh, and a slow start, but it went on to become incredibly popular. A bunch of you have probably had to write essays even on it uh, at school, so you can tell me what I got wrong about it and how I misunderstood it uh, later on this evening over tea or coffee. Uh, but the tale basically follows this group of English boys stranded on an uninhabited island and their disastrous attempts to govern themselves. The conch shell that one of the children finds early on in the story develops into this powerful symbol of civilization, English common sense and good order. One of the boys uh, states how good the English are at making to make the best rules, and that by rolling out these rules, good common English sense, we will be able to flourish on this island. Uh, the shell governs the boys' interactions with each other. So when the, the shell is blown, it sounds a, a horn-like sound that resonates throughout the island and draws them all to gather together in one place. But also for the boy who holds the shell, it authorizes them to speak, to address the gathered community of survivors. And it's an honor to open to anyone. Whoever holds the conch gets to speak to the gathered group. Uh, yet it turns out that even the English common sense and good order that's represented by that shell isn't sufficient to prevent the boys from descending, evolving into a wild and even murderous savagery. And everything falls apart. I don't think I'm really sorry to make that comment. Now, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you get a sense that perhaps there's a bit more vibe like that going on in some aspects of the church's shared life together. Of course, in the place of the conscious shell, Paul identifies love as the only thing that is sufficient to both unify, hold together the church as one, and it is 
that is the only thing that's able to properly order the use of each member's various gifts, particularly their public speaking, their public speech. Without love, even the most apparently spiritual forms of speech, such as prophecy, tongues and teaching, will devolve into the kind of chaos that can tear a community apart. Simply possessing a spiritual gift, Paul reminded us last week in chapter 13, doesn't authorise us to simply use that gift however and whenever we see fit. Only love for others is sufficient to safely order the speech of the Christian community. And really this is the opening theme of Paul's introduction to chapter 14. I have a glance with me at that opening paragraph. We'll spend a little while in these verses, verses 1 to 5. Follow the way of life and eagerly desire the of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They are to mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Uh, Paul here compares and contrasts two spiritual forms of speech tongues on the one hand and prophecy on the other. On the former, for the former it seems, is what had most captivated the imaginations and passions of the Corinthian community that practice of tongues, speaking languages that weren't simply learned by one's own ingenuity study efforts. Though it's prophecy that Paul says here, he wishes they would be most eager to practice when they get together with the church community. And it's worth noting that both of these forms of speech, tongues and speaking in prophecy, could be expressed by anyone to whom the Spirit, God the Spirit, gives that gift. Unlike perhaps the offices of apostle or teaching overseer of the church community, both tongues and prophecy be exercised by anyone in the church community, whether they be young or old, male or female, slave or free. And yet, love orders, that is, love organises how each of those speech gifts will be used very differently. Love orders the use of tongues in a way that is very different from how love orders the use of prophecy. And that's what we'll have a little bit of think about this evening. Notice first here that tongues and prophecy are both addressed to different audiences, so to speak. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through. Speaking in tongues, we're told, is addressed to God alone. Whether that be, as we see later on in the chapter, verse 13, whether that be speaking in tongues as we pray, or speaking in tongues in other languages as we sing in verse 15, Speaking in tongues is addressed to God alone. Now, it's true that in the early church, God the Spirit sometimes enabled believers to speak in human languages that they never learned themselves, so that the news of Jesus could spread across from one nationality, from 
one in Hebrew to another, and the day of Pentecost, the disciples were empowered by the Spirit to speak in the languages of many different nations who were all there in Jerusalem for a celebration, and they were therefore all able to hear the gospel contained in their own languages. But in this instance, speaking in tongues seems to have been used, at least in a way wrong, in a way that individual believers were moved by God's Spirit to offer praise to God Himself in languages other than their own. Now, prophecy, on the other hand, whatever exactly prophecy might be, was addressed not primarily to God, but to other people, to the church. The difference, though, between speaking in tongues and prophecy isn't just about who's being addressed to It was also a matter of benefiting from each kind of speech. I have a reread here, verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4. Paul writes, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies, that is, builds, encourages themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. As a form of speech that expressed itself in praising God, it seems that tongues were encouraging for the one who actually intended to speak. Tongues edify, that is, tongues somehow strengthen and encourage the one who is speaking. And yet, the speech remained a complete mystery for everyone else, anyone else who might be witnessing or hearing that speech. While speaking in tongues weren't a form of speech that could be easily ordered towards loving others, verse 3 insists that the very point, the very purpose of prophecy is to benefit others rather than the one who speaks. What is it about prophecy as a form of speech? that makes it especially fitting for loving others, for strengthening and encouraging and comforting others. What makes prophecy the most fitting form of speech for that purpose? Uh, typically, I think we've tragically had a pretty narrow view of what shape prophetic speech can take. Uh, for Harry Potter fans, uh, Professor Trelawney um, is one example, I think, of what is the most popular kind of imagination of what prophecy to be. Obscure visions and dreams and riddles that communicate mysteriously and cryptically about some distant or mysterious future events that lay way beyond ourselves and our experience. And, and I think this kind of idea of prophecy has had a disproportionate impact on how we ourselves think about what prophecy is when the Bible speaks about it. It is true that many of the Old Testament prophets did dream dreams and have visions concerning the future. Just remember when we were looking at Daniel, Daniel was one who dreamed dreams and held beheld visions. But I don't think it's the dreaming of dreams and the having of visions that actually defines what is most characteristic, centrally characteristic about prophecy, either in the Old Testament or in the New. In fact, you might have noticed this in the numbers reading earlier on. Moses, who was spoken of as the greatest of all Old Testament prophets, was considered a superior prophet precisely because his prophecy was not dependent upon receiving visions or dreams at all. Uh, 
remember these verses, these verses from uh, Numbers chapter 12 that we read before. Um, you kind of get a vibe, I don't know if you thought this as we're reading through the Numbers passage, but you get a sense that the early, the early Israelite community in Numbers wasn't that much different uh, to the Corinthian Christian church in their anxiety about wanting to be known themselves for their own property. You notice Miriam and Aaron were complaining that they weren't getting credit as being prophets in the same way Moses was. It seems that God's people have always taken off on God's gifts and worry about how they might honor themselves with them. But in describing Moses, we read here, God in himself is speaking, when there is a prophet among them, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter recognizes that in the past, prophets often were dependent upon visions and dreams to make sense of the future that God had planned. Uh, have a look there. I've, I've jumped down these Bible verses on your sheets. You might like to look them up later on, but from 1 Peter chapter 1. But Peter goes on in his second letter to note that believers now have the prophetic message made complete and clear in and through the teaching of the apostles. We don't need visions and dreams to understand the destiny to which God is taking this world. He's made his plans, even his future plans, clear in the person and the work of Christ. What defines the essence of prophecy then is not so much how it's conveyed, whether through visions, dreams, letters, or something else, but that the message is applied for the strengthening, the encouragement, and the comfort of God's people in whatever particular circumstance it is that they might be facing. Prophecy isn't simply a mysterious delivery message, or method, sorry, a delivery method, by which God communicates exclusive content to his people that he hasn't made known anywhere else. You know, so he just drops it in mysteriously through something when he wants to drop some new information on, uh, on us. Indeed, even in the Old Testament, prophecy often included no new content whatsoever. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples uh, from one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Rather than revealing anything new or mysterious, much of Jeremiah's prophecy actually reapplied age-old commandments that God had already given to Israel through the prophet Moses. There's this little section there in Jeremiah chapter 7, you might like to look up later on, where the prophet Jeremiah, his prophecy is basically a reapplication of a section of the Ten Commandments. When you think prophecy, you probably don't think the Ten Commandments as being kind of the stuff of prophecy. That's what Jeremiah uses when he delivers one of his prophetic messages to the people of Israel. Nothing new there. And then in Acts in the New Testament, we read of two New Testament prophets, Judas and Silas, who likewise reapply what the apostles have taught about sexual immorality and food sacrifice by idols to the unique circumstances that the Gentile church in Antioch were facing. The essence of prophecy isn't simply about dropping mysterious new information from out of nowhere. It's about taking what God has spoken and applying it to the particular circumstances that the church community is facing and going through for 
less friendly encouragement and comfort. Which, in fact, is what we might call the Lauren last week in the middle of the sermon. But um, we just paused for a moment and long got up and shared some words that were for the strengthening encouragement and comfort of our church community. It's what we often do in one way or another when we get together with our growth groups, or at least we have the opportunity to do it. I wonder if that's how we use our speech in growth groups for the strengthening and encouragement and comfort of others, or for the area of our own reaching out. But we at least get the opportunity to do that in those growth groups. When Paul describes the one who prophesied as being greater than the one who speaks in tongues, there in verse 5, it's not because prophecy is simply a more prestigious spiritual gift, but because prophecy is better ordered towards the loving of others. Now Paul goes on in the middle section of this chapter, verses 6 to 12, to outline several characteristics of speaking in tongues that typically limits their suitability for expressing love towards others. We'll go through this pretty quickly. Uh, have a look at me at verse 6 of chapter 14. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation, knowledge, or prophecy, or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Though it's without doubt a legitimate form of spiritual speech, Paul insists that tongues are typically just too indistinct, too indefinite, and too ineffectual to be a muscle in expressing love. Others. If others can't distinguish between the various words I'm speaking, if others can't register that I'm even specifically addressing them, then I may as well just be talking at that. And if others can't comprehend what we're actually calling or exhorting them to do, then we can talk for as long as we like, but we'll be utterly ineffectual in moving in. worse than just running the risk of being indistinct, ineffectual, indefinite. Paul goes on to say that our speech might also lead to the alienating of others. Now have a look at me in verse 10, where he picks it up there, verse 10. Undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to observe those that build up the church. Paul is saying here that we can, even using tongues, speak in such a way that rather than lovingly strengthening, encouraging, or comforting others, we effectively become foreigners to one another. 
limited, we can use tongues in a way that will instead affect needless barriers between ourselves. Now, perhaps some of you have experienced that yourself. We've experienced perhaps speaking in tongues in a public gathering where nothing's been explained or translated, and you felt alienated by that experience. I had several people speak to me about their own experiences in that way earlier this morning. And Paul concludes today's passage by describing three concrete ways in which even <coughs> spiritual forms of speech can be alienating rather than unifying in a loving kind of way. Uh, firstly, while praying or singing in tongues might elevate or lift our own spirits, by themselves, tongues are insufficient even to fully edify the one who is speaking. And have it with me what Paul himself says in verse 12. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll go to verse 13. Paul writes, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what do I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. It seems that the Corinthians had imagined that the ecstatic spiritual experience of speaking in tongues in and of itself would be sufficient to sustain them in Christian life. And yet Paul suggests that even our own spiritual strengthening, encouragement and comfort will be compromised if our minds and our understanding are ultimately left completely unengaged. The central way, this is quite you know, an important thing for us to grasp, one of the, the key things I'd love you to take away from this evening, it's quite sobering, the central way that God has chosen to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to comfort us, is not through our own solo spiritual experiences. God has decided not to strengthen, encourage, and comfort us primarily through our own solo spiritual experiences, but through us lovingly addressing one another. You might remember that from a couple of weeks ago. God has specifically designed Christian church life so that it communicates our interdependence upon one another. I remember back probably in the, the late 80s, maybe the early 90s, a family member of mine, their confusion and frustration over the apparent absence of the more miraculous spiritual gifts from the Anglican Church that they were going to at the time. Surely they anxiously expressed to me, we are missing out on some critical spiritual resource, but some critical spiritual thing that is for our bodies being withheld from us by the fact that tongues aren't being spoken of in the church community. And yet Paul says, it is through loving and speaking words of prophecy that he has set apart for us to strengthen, comfort, and encourage one another. We dare not despise that which God has instituted for one another's in and of themselves, tongues, even speaking in the most spiritually transcendent language of angels, will ultimately fail to strengthen, encourage, and comfort 
even the speaker, unless others are speaking encouragement to them through the gift of prophecy in this way. I have a look at me at where Paul continues on. Another aspect of why we can be alienated through spiritual speech in verse 16. Paul continues, otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, speaking here about speaking in tongues, how can someone else who is now in the position of an inquirer say Amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligent words to instruct others than 10,000 words. Paul is saying that whatever genuine but limited benefit someone themselves might receive from speaking in tongues, to do so in public church gatherings that they're not interpreted will most likely result in alienating other believers. In fact, to speak in tongues that no one else can understand will leave even other believers feeling as if they're spiritually clueless, as if they're spiritual newbies or inquirers. It'd exclude them from even being able to say Amen to the prayers of the prayer. It'd exclude them from even being able to join you in affirming the praise and thanks that you're offering to God. And think about this for a moment. To speak in a way which no one else understands, to speak in tongues which no one else can say Amen to, will actually rob God of the thanks and praise that others might wish to give you. You know, when other people say, Amen, a hearty Amen to the prayers that you offer, you're adding your praise to theirs. And when people aren't able to do that, you're actually robbing God of praise and thanksgiving that others enjoy the blessing of sharing with their offer. And that's one of the reasons why uh, here in church we sometimes pray in common prayers, prayers that are written that we all pray together at the same time. And I, I do know that some of us probably find those pre-written prayers are, it doesn't feel authentic or spiritually genuine. It doesn't seem to bubble up from my own individual heart. But that's because, friends, God delights when the whole body expresses prayer and thanks and praise to Him together as an expression of our shared gratitude, not only as an expression of our own individual spiritual experience. It's why it's really important for music in church to be accessible, for songs to be singable and familiar, that that should be prioritised over a musician's own preferred self-expression. That's not to say that we can't have musical items where one person brings a song in order to encourage and build the rest of us, but that can't be the sum total or the centre of our musical and singing experience together. Because we are to share our praise and thanks of God with one place as one body. Finally, tongues, even speaking in the most heavenly languages imaginable, can ironically even end up alienating people from God Himself. Paul illustrates this danger by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Have a look at me at verse 20 uh, in chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. 
in regard to evil indifference, but in your thinking you have In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I, God, will speak to, his pe- to this people, that even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Why is Paul dropping into the mix here? This Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. In what sense are speaking in tongues a sign for believers? That might sound like a good thing, doesn't it? If speaking in tongues are a sign for believers? No, I don't think so. During the time of Isaiah, God's people Israel had decided to ignore God's word. They decided that they would no longer trust or believe God's word, they would trust their own cleverness and ingenuity instead. And as a result, God declares that he was now not going to speak to them via his own mouth any longer, by his own prophets any longer. Instead, God says, I will only speak to Israel via their enemies, via the foreign tongues of those who will come to conquer you. Speaking in tongues was a sign that Israel, or at least hearing foreign tongues to Israel, was a sign that they were alienated Israel's failure to understand what God was saying to them was a sign that they were alienated from him. It was a sign of his judgment upon their stubborn refusal to listen to the words that he spoke through the prophets. In contrast, prophecy is a sign that God wishes to be understood by us, that he wants us to understand him to trust him, to actually turn to him. Uh, have a look at me at our closing verses. Uh, I'll read from verse 22 again. Tongues then are a sign of judgment, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by law, and the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Friends, truly spiritual speech, truly loving speech, is that which seeks to make God's word clearer for others, for their benefit, for their good, for their strengthening and comfort, not that which deserves our own interests or mutes God's word in favour of our own spiritual self-expression. Love alone can order our speech in a way that pleases God. <coughs> Apart from the loving ambition to strengthen, encourage and comfort others with our speech, church, church life is sure to descend into the kind of chaos that we most naturally associate with the deserted island full of unsupervised, preaching boys, as we saw in that story in that movie that the Lord flies. <coughs> Love is the only thing that can bind us together in the use of our speech. The only thing that can strengthen and encourage and comfort us when we get together to speak. And what I've got there at the bottom of your orders of service, alongside the QR code for any questions, is a grey outbox that I'm 
probably going to leave there if you want to get out to service our times for some time. Uh, yeah, at least I can find a better way of doing this. If you're wondering how might it be, right, Paul says in this letter to eagerly desire prophecy, to eagerly long to practice prophecy, to speak for others, strengthening, encouragement, comfort, then perhaps each time you come to church on Sunday or maybe you go to growth group, perhaps you can come asking that question this week. Who might I strengthen, encourage, and comfort with today's passage? And if you don't come up with any answer to it, maybe don't ask yourself that question. Pray and ask God that question. Lord, who might I strengthen or encourage or comfort with your words that have been spoken? Because remember that any spiritual gift is exactly that. It's a gift that God himself gives. So if you want to know how to speak in a way that strengthens and encourages and comforts, ask the one who gives to give to you so that you might love others. Dearest Father, we so often speak out of our anxiety to be heard, out of our anxiety to draw others into alignment with us, out of a desire for ourselves to be involved and give recognition. Father, we confess that we often speak in a way that is not directed by love itself, is not ordered. Father, we ask that in every word that we utter, your spirit might be guiding us in the way of life, so that those around us might be the ones who strengthen and encourage and comfort us. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, friends, if you wanted to ask any questions of the passage uh, or of things that I've said, please feel free to scan that uh, and send them through the next little while. I'll look at it soon.